The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It is a, a privilege to come to God's Word together tonight. We're returning to our series in Deuteronomy. For those of you who've been with us uh, throughout the series, we've worked our way pretty steadily through the first nine chapters uh, of Deuteronomy, a rich text, a rich group of texts that emphasize and remind us of God's power, God's salvation, God's grace, God's love for Israel, as well as the call and the importance of obeying and worshiping God. As we come to the end of, of uh, the section in Moses' uh, first uh, speech here to uh, Israel, ver- or chapters 10 and 11 really are very repetitive of, of themes we've already covered. Um, and so we uh, elected to skip ahead to chapter 12 tonight. And right, at, right as soon as we read the first words of chapter 12, you'll hear that uh, we've switched to a new section of Deuteronomy. We've we switched from the introduction that has emphasized God's character and God's redemption, sort of the prelude to who God is as we come to his law. And we're now switching in chapter 12 to the meat of the laws uh, themselves. Uh, Dr. Light and uh, Dr. York and I uh, met together this past week and we made the decision that um, we're going to um, probably hit somewhat uh, hit or miss through the meat of Deuteronomy and and while there are undoubtedly some of you who would love to hear sermons on how to treat the Moabites in your camp, uh, or perhaps the merits of uh, choosing cud-chewing animals for your grill out, uh, we're going to choose a, a few texts um, as we go through the, the heart of Deuteronomy and their laws uh, before we come to, again, a very uh, important ending to this book. Um, but look with me uh, at chapter 12 uh, tonight, and we'll read verses 1 through 19. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you shall live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, 
Then, to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of the towns as much as you desire, according to the blessings of the Lord your God that he's given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. And take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and you have written it to us. So I pray that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit tonight. And we pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Perhaps uh, you might wonder uh, why, if we're only selectively choosing some texts, we would choose this text to cover about free will offerings, contributions, pouring blood out onto the ground. There's a lot of details that perhaps seem uh, unapplicable. But behind these details are essential principles of worship that God is giving his people. And so we want to look in this chapter at these principles tonight. As I thought this week about some of the issues that are divisive in the church, some of the issues that divide Christians, certainly the issue of how we worship God would top the list. You think of the music that is used. Do we use this instrument or that instrument or no instrument at all? The songs that we sing, is the Trinity hymnal alone? Do we add to that? Do we not even use that? Is it psalms only? What, what do we sing? Um, it, should we use the hymnal or project it on the wall? I, I heard of a, a church recently that lost half its membership when they started to project the Trinity hymnal on the wall rather than sing out of the hymnal. Division is caused by how we decide to worship Now, Deuteronomy 12 is not going to answer all of these questions. It's not going to tell us what instruments or what songs or or how to read them. But Deuteronomy 12 is going to give us principles of worship, and Deuteronomy 12 is going to remind us that how we worship God is significant. We cannot just wake up in the morning and decide to worship our God however we want. Because in telling Israel how to worship God here, Deuteronomy identifies three, or at least three key things that must be true of the worship of God's people. And I want to look at those three things tonight. So first, note from Deuteronomy 12 that our worship of God must be exclusive. God calls Israel to worship him and to worship him alone. Now this would have been exactly the opposite of the practice and the expectation of all the peoples around Israel. For all of the nations around Israel, you worship as many gods as possible in as many places as possible. And you note the description in verse 2 that we read. 
Destroy all the places where the nations serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. The land of Canaan was not a desert where there were only a couple of trees. The land of Canaan was chock full of gods on every hill and under every tree everywhere. And the practices of the pagan nations was very literally a complex system of of worshiping many gods in every area of life so that there would be no single area of your life that wouldn't be covered in some way by some sacrifice to some god. So when God speaks to Israel and calls them to worship him exclusively, this would have been a stark contrast to the people that were surrounding Israel. As we look at uh, the, the call to reject, or to, to reject this pattern of worship, you'll note in verse 4 that God says, this pattern that's all around you, you're entering a land where there's going to be many altars, many ways to worship many gods. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way. God is going to introduce a new system of worship, or at least a completely different system of worship than the, than the nations used around them. Now, it might, be, it might be interesting, perhaps we, we would think about this, and, and maybe our own experiences with many churches all across the nation might cause us to ask the question, well, why would God want to destroy every altar and only be worshipped in one place? Wouldn't it be better, God, if we maybe destroyed all the idols, but left the altars there so that we could worship you everywhere? And, and I think that's a natural question for us to ask. Why, why doesn't God want to be worshipped on, on a ton of different altars? Why does he only want to be worshipped in one place? And that's a very important question in the text here. Because God is very wisely giving a, a completely different pattern of worship. He says, no, I don't want you to use their altars to worship me. I want you to utterly destroy every hint of every smell of every possible worship that took place in the Canaanite nations, and I want you to worship me in a completely different way. And I think there's two reasons, at least, why God does this. First, by destroying every uh, reminder of pagan worship, God is assuring that there would be no avenue that would, that would allow idolatry to sneak back in to the lives of Israel. If the altars are left, that will remind the Israelites of how the pagan nations worshipped. And if all their altars are left, might that not lead their hearts down the same path that the Canaanites practiced? So God is, is destroying every element of worship so that he alone might be worshipped. But secondly, realize that by having just one place of worship, it's a physical reminder to Israel that there is only one God. See, if you're one of the pagan nations, if God comes to your land, you don't say, well, you know, we can't worship that God. We've already got these other gods over here. You just say, great, a new God. Let's add him to the list. But God is saying, no, I'm not one God among a list. I'm not even the most important God. I am the only God. And so by having one place to worship, Israel would have a very physical reminder that this God is God alone and he is the only one. And so there is one place where we worship him as he has set forth. So God sets forth this pattern of exclusive worship where the Israelites would worship him in one place that he will choose because he alone is God. 
in the history of Israel, as many of you know in the coming chapters and, and books of the Old Testament, will show why God very wisely emphasized this so strongly. Israel's greatest temptation when they come into the land is going to be to start worshiping the gods that the Canaanites worshipped in the way the Canaanites worshipped. In fact, the sin that is identified in the Old Testament above all others that leads Israel to losing this promised land is the sin of idolatry. And some of you may remember the verse in, in 2 Kings 17, which actually echoes this very passage in Deuteronomy. In 2 Kings, the author is explaining why Israel went into exile. And it says this, This exile occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. They set up pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree as the nations did whom the Lord had destroyed. Do you hear that similarity? On, on every hill and under every green tree, Israel is sent into exile because they copy the gods and the manner of worship of the nations. And so God's first law, his first command, the first statute, as he longs for his people to secure the blessings of the promised land, is worship me alone. Worship me alone in the way that I choose. God is not in addition He's not part of our worship. He is our whole worship. If I can pause just for a brief moment of uh, application here. God continues to call us to worship Him exclusively. Exclusively. And this could have many different applications depending on where a believer lives around the world. For some, this will continue to mean chopping up idols. I was reading a a book by David Platt, who's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. And Platt describes a visit to Southeast Asia. And as he went into Southeast Asia, he was asked to preach at a very remote village where there was a small underground church operating. And he went and he preached the gospel there. And as he preached throughout the day, there was one woman in particular who seemed interested in the gospel. And at the end of the day, became a Christian and accepted Christ. Well, the next morning, that woman came back to to David Platt and and a man who was with him and said, will you please come to my house? I have many idols, and I want you to help me destroy them. And so Platt talks about walking into this hut and literally walking into an an idol warehouse. On the walls were covered black and red posters of idols. Figurines circled the entire house, and there in the middle of the hut, was a large statue anchored to the ground that it might be the center of their daily life. But then David Platt describes how they gathered all of this in a big heap outside the hut and prayed as a bonfire literally burned the chopped up idols. What a symbol of exclusive worship of God. And in many places in our world, that is what the worship of God means, saying no to every other manner of worship in order that we might worship God and God alone. But, of course, we are here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it would be very surprising, not impossible, but very surprising, I think, for any of us to walk into a home and find an idol warehouse there. We're not not likely or we're not expecting to find that. So what will it mean for us? What will it mean for us to worship God exclusively? Well, Dr. Light preached just a few weeks ago about idolatry 
And, and he gave us several questions to ask. He said, if we want to know about our worship, we must ask questions such as, what captures our heart? What motivates us to action? What fills our thoughts? What delights us, awes us, or captures our attention? What is it that fills our minds throughout our day? You know, it's no coincidence that the New Testament ties idolatry to covetousness. What captures our heart? And so David Platt, as he talks about idolatry, asks questions of us, and he goes on to ask, saying, we talk of worshiping God alone, but we hardly recognize it when our own heart is pulled incessantly by so many things. We're pulled by shopping for more possessions, constantly thinking about or worried about or being enamored by money, watching TV shows that are not honoring to our God or viewing pornography, consumed by sports, driven by anger or discontentment, are all things that are capturing our hearts. They are grabbing and pulling our hearts towards things other than God. And I think our main concern in Deuteronomy 12 is this. We know we shouldn't replace worshiping God with loving money. I think every single one of us would say, yes, I should not stop loving God and start loving money instead. We know that. But God's concern here in Deuteronomy 12 is that God is worshipped alone, not in addition to any other thing. And so I think the greatest danger for many of us, and I know for myself, is not that we will stop worshipping God and start loving money, but that while we are practicing the worship of God, we will also be loving money. And we will also be consumed by entertainment. We will also be delighting in things that are pulling our hearts. And we think that because we're showing up to worship God at church, we're okay. And we've missed the fact that there are so many other things that have grabbed our heart and we're no longer worshiping God alone. I remember uh, a very distinct moment. I think I was 14. And I was sitting in my living room. At the time, uh, probably uh, my greatest uh, attention was given to knowing when the Cleveland Indians, my baseball team, played and how I could make sure I listened to every single game. It was a Sunday afternoon about 4 o'clock, and I had uh, religiously, and I use that word intentionally, listened to the Indians, and they had lost at the last minute of the game. And I was so devastated, I, just, I, I was sitting there, I was, I was frustrated, I was angry, and, and I remember thinking, well, uh, it's about time to go to church for evening service. And I realized I was in no possible frame of, of, of heart to worship God because I was so frustrated by what had happened in the baseball game. And I realized something is wrong. I am not exclusively worshiping God. And I remember that. How many times, maybe, do we need to be grabbed and, and said, look at our hearts Look what is consuming us. Look what is filling our minds and our hearts. Are we worshiping God alone or is our practice of worship being joined to so many other things that are pulling and grabbing our heart? Deuteronomy 12 says the worship of God is exclusive. And I think we could say it this way. According to Deuteronomy 12, we will either worship God alone or we are not actually worshiping God at all, even if he makes the list of one of the five or ten things we may do with our lives worship of God is exclusive. Well, the second thing that this passage tells us is closely related to the first, and that is this, that the worship of God happens according to God's instructions. How we worship is a matter of our obedience to God. It's not just done however we want. You'll notice that God doesn't just say, well, I'm going to set up one place to worship, so 
uh, you know, as long as you find your way to that place, you do whatever you want. You know, sing, dance, you know, anything. Anything is fine as long as you're thinking about me and it's done there. He gives very specific instructions. You offer these burnt offerings. You give these sacrifices. There are tithes that you will present. You can kill and, and, and eat meat here, but not here. You do it this way and not that way. There's very important instructions for how we worship. I think verse 14 summarizes it well when it says, At the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Worship is a matter of obedience to God's commands. And while the specific commands of of killing these animals and doing these burnt offerings are no longer the way God calls us to worship, who have come in Christ, the principle is still true, that we worship the way God calls us to worship. And this is, again, going to be a very important thing in the history of Israel. Israel's disobedience is going to be be marked by worshiping God in ways they want to do instead of obeying God's instructions. And maybe some of you will think about uh, when uh, we have David, who's a king of Israel, and Solomon, and then the kingdom splits in half between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And as, as Jeroboam takes half of the tribes of Israel away, he says, wow, the place God chose for us to worship is down there in Judah. I know, I'll set up a new place for the people in our kingdom to worship so they don't have to travel so far. Well, it was very thoughtful of him, wasn't it? No, it was not. It was disobeying God's commands. And so Jeroboam sets up an altar to worship God in Israel, not in the place that God has chosen. And God says that this action was a specific action of sin and disobedience. In fact, it was so despicable in God's sight that every other wicked king is judged based on how they compare to Jeroboam's wickedness because he would dare to set up his own altar and try to worship God in his way rather than following God's instructions. Thinking that we can worship God in ways that we want, that don't follow uh, God's commands, that are not obedient to God, is a matter of life and death for Israel. And it's a matter of life and death for us as well. And it, it, it may not seem like it, or it may seem hard to really know how we can apply this, because well, God hasn't given us perhaps the specific instructions for what our worship service should look like, we might think, like he has uh, for, for Israel here. But God has given us many things that uh, apply. He has given us many commands that Christ alone is to be worshipped. He's given us many commands about the heart of our worship and the reverence and the joy that comes with it. He gives us uh, many, many things that apply. But perhaps the thing that, that comes to mind most importantly is again that, that Scripture is our basis for how we worship. You know, there's a widely circulating idea now that many different religions lead to the same God. That there are many different patterns that people can choose that are all essentially worshiping uh, the, the, the supreme being or God, whoever he is. And, and scripture gives us one avenue, but perhaps a, a Buddhist might have another avenue or uh, a Jehovah's Witness might have another avenue. And, and however, however it manages to, to work or, or make us happy or, or give us some security or comfort, as long as we're worshiping God somehow, uh, you know, then, then we're okay. This is certainly gaining, gaining uh, acceptance in many places in our, in our nation. 
But Deuteronomy 12 is just one place where God specifically tells us that this is not the case. There are not many different ways to worship a supreme being, and as long as it works for you, you're okay. There is one God, God alone who is God, and he has revealed himself in his word. And if we set his word aside or seek another route around his word that might be more convenient or we think uh, matches our, our thoughts or our hearts better, we're ignoring God's call to worship the only God as he has revealed to us. When you think about what this word is, that it is God speaking to us, that God himself has, has graciously come to us and told us how he is to be worshipped, where blessing comes from. How could we dare assume that, well, yes, the God of all the universe has decided to speak to us, but we can ignore that and go our own way if it works better for us. No, God alone is God, and he is to be worshipped as he commands, because he is worthy of exclusive obedient worship, and because exclusive obedient worship is the path of blessing. It was the path for Israel to remain in the land, and it is the path for us to remain in relationship with our God through Jesus Christ. And this is the heart of Deuteronomy 12. The heart of Deuteronomy 12 calls us to exclusive, obedient worship. But I want to mention one other key thing that this text tells us about our worship. It's not said as declaratively or specifically as as the call to worship God alone, but it's repeated over and over again. And I want you to notice that this text calls us again and again to worship God with joy. That worship is referred to over and over again as a joyful event. as something that we do with rejoicing. Notice in verse 7, in verse 7, God says, There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Or, you. or you look down to verse 12. And down in verse 12 it says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, the Levite that's within your towns. Or then you could look down uh, again to verse 18. And verse 18 says, But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place the Lord your God will choose for you. You, your son, your daughter, your male servants, your female servants, the Levite, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and all that you undertake. Every specific command is paired with this call to rejoice. Your worship of God is a joyful event. And I don't think we can capture the heart of worship in this passage without noting that the worship of God is a matter of rejoicing. I think another way we could say it is that from Deuteronomy 12, we hear that worshiping God comes with joy because joy is a natural outflow of who God is and what he has done. Joy is the natural thanks and praise that comes out of our heart when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. As you read through this passage, here's, here is Israel on the edge of the promised land, about to come in to the land that God has promised them. And if you just think for a minute all that God has done for them. He has come to them in Egypt. He's spoken to them. He's rescued them in miraculous manner. He's brought them out of Egypt, saved them from the Egyptian army, 
covered and defeated the army with an ocean. He's forgiven Israel's failure and sin again and again and again. He's preserved a new generation of God's people who will come into the land. He's provided manna for them daily, day after day. This generation, as we've heard several times, would have grown up eating nothing but manna. Every day they had received God's blessings from his hand. And, and what God is saying is, Israelite, how? How can you stand here at the edge of the Jordan and not worship your God with joy when you think of everything that he has done for you? Look at what God has done. Look where he has brought you. And if you look at what he has done and where he has brought you, the only response you will be able to have is to rejoice because God has blessed you and saved you. See, this is not a grumpy, grumpy God saying, well, look at everything I've done for you now, so accept it and be happy. Now start rejoicing. This is a God who's saying, just remember, remember what I've done for you. And joy is going to pour out if we realize who God is and what he has done for us. There's no possible response other than to be filled with joy in our worship. I think, I think perhaps this text recognizes, and certainly God knows, that Israel's hearts can easily get sidetracked from joyful worship. They get sidetracked by their desires and their plan, which isn't being met uh, in, in God's plan. And certainly this has happened all along. They're grumbling because they don't have as much water as they want or the kind of food that they want or taking the path that they want. And we've seen it all throughout. But I think this text might even be, be recognizing that you could imagine an Israelite saying, man, it's using only one place and it's all the way down in Jerusalem. And I've got to walk all the way there to worship my God. I think this text is, is perhaps recognizing our hearts that find it much easier to, to focus on a small thing to grumble about than on a great thing to rejoice in. And so God is reminding them right here that God's goodness and God's provision are outrageous. They are unexpectedly incredible. And if our minds will focus on God and what he has done rather than the little desires of our hearts that we wish it was this way or that way, we will worship with joy. I couldn't help as I thought about this to think how many times I forget an incredible blessing that God has given me and spend my time complaining about a small thing that isn't the way I wanted. And I was remembering as I thought about this dear friends of ours uh, who had been struggling for, for years with infertility. And at one of our home fellowship groups, I remember the, the wife with tears in her eyes saying, it makes me so mad when I hear parents complaining that they had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning with their children what I wouldn't do to wake up at six in the morning to hold a baby of my own. And I thought, how convicting. How convicting that I as a parent who have been blessed with wonderful, healthy children would complain, would dare to complain over things that are difficult or hard at times. Or I thought also, I, I thought of how many times do I complain about finances and, and I think, well, the stock market is down, so I'm complaining when my stock market balance perhaps is the greatest evidence of God's blessing that he could have. I'm not wealthy, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how many times is God's financial blessing evident and I'm complaining because there's ups and downs or this or that or I don't have exactly what I want? Or maybe, maybe we think about complaining, we're complaining about the weather and that event didn't happen when, when all around us is, is a house, is shelter, is entertainment, 
so many options that God has given us. What, what area of our life could we not think of areas that we complain when we're stared in the face by incredible evidence of God's glorious blessing? Deuteronomy 12 is calling to Israel and saying, I know your heart. I know your tendency to complain. But if you will turn your mind to who God is and what he has done, joy is the only possible way to worship. And just as God spoke to them, God is speaking to us as well. Just as God rescued Israel from Egypt and brought them with food through the desert to a promised land flowing with milk and honey, so God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. He has died for our sins. He has forgiven us our whole debt. He has promised us imperishable blessing with him forever. And so there is no place for our tendency to complain, to grumble, or nominate ourselves as Eeyore of the day in the face of God's blessing. Worship, worship that is joyful and generous will be the overflow of our heart when we acknowledge his blessings and turn our minds to them. Well, as we conclude, we have been called by this passage to exclusive, obedient, joyful worship. But as I thought about this passage, I couldn't help but also turn my eyes over the chapters of of Scripture to see where this passage points. See, we've already talked about how Israel failed again and again in their own worship. They worshipped many gods instead of God exclusively. They worshipped in their own way, disobediently, instead of how God called them to do. They worshipped out of duty and routine instead of with the joy that recognized who God was. And so God's wrath came upon them. God said that being the God of Israel was like being a husband of a promiscuous lover who committed adultery with everyone around. That's what God saw of his people with distracted, idolatrous hearts. But amazingly, God didn't stop with the punishment that that Israel deserved. He promised again and again that true worship would be restored through someone that he would send. Someone that he would send And so God's wrath was not the end of the story, but but God, God sent His Son. God sent His Son to be the answer, to forgive and to offer hope to a sinful people. And so now we, because of Christ, who who have also failed to worship our God exclusively, who who, who have also offered distracted hearts grabbed by other things, who have also failed in our call to joy, have a Redeemer who will forgive us. And as I read this passage, which talks about God setting up one specific place to worship him, I couldn't help of Jesus' conversation with a woman from Samaria who asked him a question about this very principle, who said, who said well, Jesus, I see that you're a prophet, and I've been wondering because we in Samaria, we worship God in a different place than Jerusalem. Is that okay? Is that okay for us to do that, or are the Jews right that we should all go to Jerusalem? And as, as, a, as a teacher uh, of, of, uh, of Israel, I wonder if she was ready for Jesus to say, I'm sorry, but you can't worship here in Samaria. You have to come to Jerusalem. I wonder. I wonder if that's the answer she expected. But that's not the answer he gives. He says, I tell you the truth. The time has come when you don't need to worship or you are not called to worship in that mountain or this mountain. But the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we boil down what Jesus is saying, he's saying worship is not a matter of place anymore, but a person. 
It's not a matter of what place do you come to God from. It's a matter of through whom do you come. It's a matter of what person do you appeal to. Worship is not a matter of this building, that building, this mountain, or that mountain. It is a matter of do we come through Christ. I think if we're honest about ourselves, you and I know how desperately we don't deserve to be in God's presence. But because Christ has taken our place, we have hope of worshiping Him and being with Him again. Now, our path to true worship is to worship God through a great Savior. It's to cling to Christ and His perfect obedience that He lived on our our behalf. It's to rejoice and let our hearts burst forth with all the joy that must be the response if we know the sin of our hearts and know what Christ has done and know the hope that He has given. Joyful worship will result. See, we are... We are called to exclusive, obedient, joyful worship. Now, not at a temple in Jerusalem, but through Jesus Christ alone. For as he tells us, there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. So we must come through him alone. And in him alone is incomprehensible blessing. So if we do come through him alone, it will be joyful, joyful worship. This is our call. As God's people, let's pray. Father, Father, the only God who is to be worshipped alone, forgive our distracted hearts and call them back. Call them back to, to be in awe of a God who would reach down to sinful people and save us. I pray that we would have an accurate picture of how much you've done for us the depth that you went to to forgive our sin, to pay the penalty of our sin, to rise again, to give us life, if we would but know our sinfulness and know what Christ has done and realize the magnitude of the salvation you've offered, then joyful worship will spring from our hearts. So give us that recognition that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.